invite you to uh, open a Bible up to the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5. As you can see from the slide, uh, today is the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. We're observing that today. And if you're not familiar with that terminology, I'll uh, explain it a bit here in a few minutes. This is the, it's always each year, the Sunday closest to the date of the anniversary of the um, Supreme Court decision that effectively struck down all laws in our nation uh, protecting unborn human life. And so we observe this day to remind us of the situation in our nation and uh, think and pray about how God would have us respond to that situation. So that's why we're going to be in Ephesians 5. Let's begin. Let me read the first two verses. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, that being a reference to Jesus' death on the cross on our behalf. So, God tells those of us who have experienced His love in the person of Jesus to uh, follow His example and love people the way He has loved us. Doesn't that sound good? Love people the way He's loved us. What does that really mean? It is kind of amazing how many different ways love can be thought of, explained, defined, and there are great disagreements about it. What does it mean to love people the way Christ has loved us? And in light of what day it is, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, what does it look like to love people who have experienced in one way or another a rejection of the sanctity of human life. Maybe they've participated in it. Maybe they have uh, been a partner with it in some way. And I know full well that the topic of abortion is one that is very sensitive and not one people really want to think about. Um, And it can be a very painful topic for those who have experienced that. Um and you may well be one of them, there are a lot of such people. God calls us to love people, regardless of their background, regardless of their experiences, and to love them in their pain or in their guilt. What does that look like? There are a lot of those people. You just have to do the math. Since 1973, there have been close to 62 million abortions in our nation. And to just kind of put perspective on that, that's, that's over 2,000 a day, every day. Um, more lives have been taken through abortion in our nation. More lives are taken every year, every year through abortion, than have been lost in combat in all of our nation's wars put together. And 
That means there are a lot of people who have either willingly or unwillingly, reluctantly, not reluctantly, participated in the taking of a legally innocent human life. And they might really regret it. They might not regret it at all. They might think about it all the time. They might never think about it. They might wish that abortion were outlawed. They might wish that it or think it ought to be the right of every woman, no matter what. But one way or another, abortion has marked their lives, and and these are people who are everywhere. They're in our families, there are coworkers, students, fellow students at school perhaps. In this very room, you may well be one of them. And the question we want to wrestle with is, how do we love people the way God has loved us in Christ, who have this experience in their life. Well, many, of course, would say that the way to love them, uh, the influential voices in our culture would say, the best way to love these people is just leave them alone. Leave them alone. Mind your own business. Don't talk about it at all. Just be sure to keep abortion legal and safe and let's just not discuss it. That's what our culture says is loving. But if we are believers in Jesus, we don't get our directions from our culture, we get them from him. And so let's keep on reading here in Ephesians 5, and let's just see what walking in the way of love looks like according to the Spirit of Christ. So verse 3. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality, nor of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this, you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you, you were once darkness. He's writing to believers in Jesus. But now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by light becomes visible. And everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it is said Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The thing that strikes me is that there is a big difference between what God says is loving and what our culture says is loving. And one of the ways you could describe that difference is say it's the difference between being truly loving and just being nice. Now, I want to explain that because every time I say it like that, 
somebody always misunderstands. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. There is a kind of niceness that is essential for us, okay? If we're talking about being kind and being gentle, being compassionate, well then, that's part of being a follower of Jesus. We're to have those qualities. But very often in our world, being nice means something very different. It means avoid conflict at all possible costs. Don't ever discuss anything controversial. Don't say anything that might possibly offend someone or hurt their feelings. And if that's what nice means, Jesus isn't nice. And he doesn't want his followers to be nice either. And you can see that right here. Right after this tells us to walk in the way of love. Be loving. It says all kinds of things that aren't nice. Well, as the world defines nice. Remember, I'm making a distinction there. So... Right after it tells us to walk in the way of love, it says all kinds of things that are just controversial, difficult. Uh, For example, it says avoid sexual immorality. Well, now that's a controversial topic. Um, In our culture, what you do sexually is nobody else's business. And what's immoral for one person is not necessarily immoral for anybody else. So if you go around saying that there are sexual standards of right and wrong that are true for everybody, well, that's going to offend a lot of people. And offending people is not considered nice. It goes on to say that people who live in certain ways will not inherit God's kingdom. But instead, they're going to experience his wrath, his just anger toward sin, unrepentant sin. That's not a nice thing to tell people. And then it says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Whoa, expose deeds of darkness? Do you see how that means that some deeds, some actions really are dark? They're actually evil and they should be labeled as evil and they should be exposed as evil? I guarantee you, if you do that, you're going to upset a lot of people. And upsetting people is not nice. But what if being nice in that sense is actually not loving? This is so relevant. To this day. Because abortion and other violations of the sanctity of human life are not considered nice topics. Nobody wants to talk about them. Nobody wants to think about them except in very vague terms like reproductive rights or something. It is considered rude to say what abortion actually is, the intentional killing of an unborn human being. It's not nice to say that. But what if it's loving to say that? 
What if being loving includes pointing out that certain things are hurtful and deadly and destructive and dark? And the ultimate example for us, we're told right here, is God himself. It says, follow God's example and walk in the way of love. Follow God's example and walk in the way of love. God is always loving. Okay. Well, does God ever say anything to us that makes us feel uncomfortable? Does he ever say anything that could potentially hurt our feelings? Like, you're lost, you're a sinner, you're separated from me, and you need to repent and put your faith in my son, or you're going to experience eternal separation? Does he ever say things like, all have sinned? And that the wages of sin is death? Well, we know he does. Why does he tell us these uncomfortable, hurtful things? Because he wants to do good to us. He wants to do good to us. And in order to do good to us, he has to hurt our feelings. You have to be convinced you have the disease in order to take the medication. Anybody who's had cancer knows this is true. Okay, if you got diagnosed with cancer, that happened to me in 2001. And then, you know, I went through chemotherapy. And my experience of that was actually pretty mild. Some have had much harder. Nobody does that for the heck of it. They only do it if they're convinced they have disease. And I just want you to imagine this because, okay, so I I had a lump removed from under my jaw. I had been told ahead of time repeatedly. It almost certainly isn't cancer. Almost certainly. So I, great, it's gone. I got to go in and get my stitches taken out. Okay, now the doctor's read the pathology report. He knows it's cancer. Now, what would we think of this man if he had said, I don't want to hurt his feelings. I don't want to mess up his day. This is going to ruin his, his week, his month. I mean, this is, this is nah, I'll just say he's fine. No. The loving thing to do was to do exactly what he did. He says, you have cancer and you need to go through treatment. Sometimes we have to have our feelings hurt. We have to have things told to us that we do not want to hear, but we need to hear for our own good. So how do we do that? How do we do that in a culture that tolerates and even celebrates deeds of darkness? How do we show love in a culture that disregards life, at least in certain, at certain stages? Well, I'm going to point out a couple of ways that I see coming out of this passage. And the first is this. We've got to back up pro-life talking with pro-life living. Back up what we say with what we do. Put your money where your mouth... I mean, we, we, there's all kinds of ways to say it. But you back up pro-life living with, or talking with living. So, if we say, because the Scripture teaches that every human life should be treated with respect and dignity... Because every human life is created in the image of God. That's what the sanctity of human life means. 
Human life is special because only human life is created imago Dei, in the image of God. Now, if we say that, that every life should be treated with dignity and respect, then we must treat every human life with dignity and respect, even those we don't particularly like, even those with whom we disagree very strongly, even with people who voted for the other guy. Every human life. And then we've got to point out, if we're going to point out that certain choices are destructive and harmful and deadly, well, then we can't make those same choices ourselves. We've got to back up the talk with the walk. Now, for example, if we're going to love people enough to say that abortion is hurtful and wrong then we've got to have nothing whatever to do with sexual immorality. You say, oh, wait a minute, that's not talking about abortion. That's talking about sexual immorality. Yes, because it's sexual immorality that leads to the vast majority of abortions. It's sexual immorality that makes abortion seem necessary. What is sexual immorality? It's, it's not hard to define. The Bible's very clear. The word in the original is very clear in its meaning. It means any sexual activity with somebody you're not married to. That's what it means. All sexual activity outside of biblically defined marriage is immoral and irresponsible. Verse 3 says that among God's people, there shouldn't even be a hint of it. And what's more, according to verse 6, it says that it's deserving of God's wrath. No, you talk about a message that's countercultural. You talk about an issue that our culture says isn't even an issue and shouldn't be an issue, and if you say otherwise, you're hateful. But we've got to see the connection. The reason we are a culture that tolerates abortion is because we are a culture that tolerates and even celebrates immorality. They go together. And that's just so contrary to our culture, maybe even contrary to how many of us think or how we were raised to think or how the culture is influencing the thing. We think, well, so what if, if people have sex outside of marriage? What's the big deal? I mean, if they really love each other. In fact, if they really love each other, it's a good thing. See, that's the problem. That's the problem. We redefine what is really loving. And we let our culture define it for us instead of Scripture, instead of God defining it for us. So look at verse 2. Walk in the way of love. Walk in the way of love. Love, 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 love. And not even a hint of sexual immorality. So it's obvious those two things go together. don't go together. Sex outside of marriage has nothing to do with love. How do you know if you really love somebody? How do you know? Is it a feeling? Is it a desire? You know you really love somebody if you're willing to say no to you, if that's what's best 
for them. So imagine a guy who's got a girlfriend, really likes her, and he wants to sleep with her. He wants to have sex with her. And so he's trying to persuade her. He's trying to convince her that's a good thing. And the reason he's doing this, he says, he thinks, is because he loves her so much. Really? Is that really his motive? That he loves her so much that he wants her to do something that Jesus says is contrary to the will of God and worthy of the wrath of God? Is it really love that's motivating him? So if you're an unmarried guy and you're, you tuned in, maybe you're regretting that, but <laughs> listen up, guys. Do you want to express your love to your girlfriend sexually? Great. Great. Marry her. <laughs> Marry her. Stand up in front of other witnesses and promise to honor her and love her and cherish her until death do you part. Be willing also to love and nurture and be responsible for any child you happen to conceive. And if you say, whoa, hold the, hold the train here. I'm not ready to make that commitment. Okay. Well, then you're not ready to express your love to her sexually. And if you really love her, you'll be okay with that. Now, to be fair, it's not just guys who think they're being loving when they're actually being selfish. Women do this too. Women will sometimes use sex to get what they want. Well, that's selfish. Or, you know, a girl might give in to her boyfriend's request because she's afraid she'll lose him otherwise. That's selfish. People who view pornography are not thinking about what's best for the people in those images. That's selfish. We've got to rethink it. We've got to rethink it. We've been programmed by our culture to think very incorrectly about this. And it's so important you understand this, that we understand this. The problem with immoral sex, sex outside of marriage, is not that it's so fun. That's not the problem. You know, people sometimes think that. I, that's what I thought when I was a young man. Man, God's obviously got a problem with pleasure here. What's his deal? That's stupid. That's stupid. Who invented pleasure? God, it's not as if, well, okay, if you have this much pleasure, that's okay. But if you have too much, nope, sin. That's crazy. Who invented those nerve endings in certain parts of your body? God did. Look at Proverbs 15, 18. This is written to a young man. Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. That's clearly a metaphor. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated. Do you know there's a place where the Scripture tells you to be drunk? That's it. It's a metaphor. Be careful. Does everybody know? I'm not speaking literally here. I'm quoting a metaphorical passage in Proverbs. Be intoxicated always, not with booze, but with her love. 
That's not from a God who thinks pleasure is a problem, okay? The problem with immoral sex is not that it's so fun, it's that it's so unloving. No matter what we can, how we convince ourselves otherwise. And abortion proves it. Abortion proves it. Our culture says, sure, go ahead and have fun. Do whatever you want. Gratify those urges. Don't worry about it because if she gets pregnant, she can always just have an abortion. Which means, if you do the hard work of thinking about what that means, it means she can always have that little girl or little boy put to death. Now, it is not nice to say that. I know that. But it's the truth. It is sexual immorality that leads to the vast majority of abortions. There are exceptions, but that's the majority. So if you and I are going to uphold the sanctity of human life with any credibility, then we must have nothing whatever to do with immorality because they go together. So if we're fooling around with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, if we're viewing pornography, hey, even if we're watching TV shows that make immorality look fun and beautiful and totally acceptable, then we're doing the very thing that verse 7 tells us never to do. We're partnering with darkness. We're partnering with a culture that tolerates abortion because it wants no limits whatever on sex. So back up pro-life talking with pro-life living, and pro-life living means more than we might think. Second thing, the other thing to do to live a life of love is to shine, shine God's light into the darkness. Now verse 8 is an important reminder for all of us who have become believers in Jesus. It says, you were once darkness. So please, let's see. There's no room for arrogance here. There's no room for talking down to anybody. There is no room for a sense of superiority. All right? As it says, before God made us alive with Christ, as it says, it says this in chapter 2, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. So before God shines the light of Jesus into our lives, in, in His eyes we're darkness. And then He turns our darkness into light because and only because of Jesus when we become connected to him by faith. And then he says to us, now I want you to go and I want you to shine the light. Go shine the light so others can see it. So verse 11, have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Okay, how do you expose the dark? How do you expose the dark? You, you shine light. That's how you do it. So how do we do that? How do we shine the light? Well, verse 9 says, shining the light looks like, and he lists three words, goodness, righteousness, and truth. Let's think those through one at a time. First, shine goodness. Shine goodness. So what does that mean? It means do good things. And good here is a word that means like beautiful. Do beautiful things. Do helpful things. So help women who are in pregnancies that, for whatever reason, they don't, they don't want. 
Support Options 360, our local pregnancy clinic here in Vancouver that just remodeled and is reopening. Now, our church support, that's a ministry our church supports. So every time you give to this church, some of it goes to them, but you can support them on your own too. Options 360. Uh, another one would be Open House Ministries. That is a, a, a helpless, or not helpless, homeless ministry to homeless people who might very well think that another baby is a mouth they can't afford to feed. Make friends. Make friends with children and teens who are from broken homes because they're at higher risk for pregnancy, pregnancy outside of marriage and abortion. So shine goodness. Next, shine righteousness. Righteousness means living according to God's standards. So we've talked about this already, but it's important to know God did not create the boundaries He created for sex to frustrate us. He did it as a way of increasing our pleasure, increasing our satisfaction, and protecting us from hurt, keep us from hurting ourselves and hurting others. So embrace his boundaries is good. Embrace his boundaries is good. And if you're married, work at it. Work at making your marriage an example of love and respect and delight. Work at it. You have to work at it. It doesn't just happen. Love, respect, and delight. See, we don't want to just be against immorality. Everybody put on your, you know, sour face. You what? We don't want to be just against immorality. We want to be for God's design. For His design for sex and marriage because it's beautiful. Marriage and sex. Not sex and marriage. Get that in the right order. That's huge. So we want people to look at the marriages of believers in Jesus and go, man, that's good. I want that. I want that. True righteousness is attractive, not joyless. One of the biggest myths out there is that, you know, single people sleeping around and hooking up are having way more fun than married people. You know what? Every survey that actually asks people about it, it's exactly the opposite. It's not even in my notes. Shine truth. That's the third. Shine truth. You would think with all the information out there in the world that everybody would know what abortion really is, but many don't, especially young people. They do not know. Uh, they don't know what it is. They don't know how deeply it hurts people. They don't know that every single abortion always results in the death of a little baby boy or girl. Regardless of how developed they are, regardless of how big they are, they're a human being. People need to know the truth. Oh, so I forgot to bring them with me. Back in the back on the table out there, there are some paperback books and some uh, printed out copies. One, one's a handout that's relatively brief. The other one is a book. You are welcome to take either or both. If you take the book, you've got to promise to read it. 
Um, but these, this is a book by Randy Alcorn that will really help you understand the truth, to know what you're talking about, how to lovingly respond to arguments um, that are contrary to the sanctity of human life. And you think, okay, so let's have to, what else can I do? What else can we do? There's got to be more than we can do. Well, let's put it this way. This has helped me to think like this. What if today it were legal in our nation to put to death infants and toddlers if the parents either had financial problems or emotional problems or, you know, things just aren't good in the family. So you've got a, a one-year-old, you can just put them to death. What if that were happening over 2,000 times a day in our culture? What would we do? Wouldn't we pray? Wouldn't we pray passionately? Wouldn't we pray daily for that injustice to end? Wouldn't we speak out for those who cannot defend themselves? Would we not try to help parents who feel so desperate that they think they need to kill their children in order to have a happy, meaningful life? Well, let's do those things. Because over 2,000 children are put, being put to death every day. We just don't see it. And it doesn't make the news. It's the biggest injustice going on in our nation, but it's happening in secret. And so people don't think about it and they don't pray about it. I'd like to challenge every single one of you here, if you're a believer in Jesus, I'm challenging myself. Let's pray daily. Put it on your daily prayer list that this injustice will become unthinkable. That hearts will so be changed by the Spirit of God that it's not mainly about who's in office and which laws get passed, but it just becomes unthinkable, just the way slavery is today. Because at one point, the same arguments that are being used to keep abortion legal were being used to keep slavery legal. It's the choice of the one in power, the one who's got the ability to do that. And then one other way, this is so important, that we need to shine truth is to be sure we tell people about the forgiveness that is available in Jesus. You know, one of the hardest things, I, I've, I've talked to people who've participated in abortion, one of the hardest things for many of them to believe, really, is that God could ever forgive them for what they did. Maybe that's you. And if it is, please listen. 1 Timothy 1, 15-16, here's the Apostle Paul saying, it's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save, to rescue sinners. He did not come just to teach us. He did not come to reward the righteous. He came to rescue sinners of whom, Paul says, I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. So, 
Paul was an enemy of Christ who murdered Christians. And yet, he says, Jesus forgave this murderer to prove that no one, no one, no one, no one is too sinful for him to forgive. No one. God forgives us when we say yes to Jesus because Jesus died in our place. God forgives us completely of everything. Absolutely everything. Not because of how good we are. Not because of how sorry we are. But because of how good Jesus is and what He did on the cross. That's it. That's the good news. So if today you are in darkness, hear again the words of verse 14. Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. Jesus wants to shine on you. He wants to shine His truth, His love, His forgiveness into each one of our lives. And all we have to do is wake up to Him. All we have to do is say, okay, I I believe you. I'll trust you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are the only one who knows what's going on in every heart in this room, everyone, every heart that's tuned in via live stream, and you know what each need is, and you know those of us who have needed to hear a hard word, a convicting word, because we've been cherishing sin or we've been feeling too ashamed to even deal with it. And so, Father, would you please cause your truth to sink deep into our hearts and that you would change us. And if we're bearing a load of guilt, that we would confess that sin, not hide it, and be free from it. If we're uh, resisting your grace, if we're denying the truth, Lord, please rescue us from our delusions. And Lord, if we've just been apathetic, Or we're just tired of hearing about it. We just want the issue to go away. Lord, it's not going away. It would seem. The the stakes are so high. Will you help us engage? Well, will you help us love people the way you've asked us, you've told us, you've commanded us to love people? To do goodness, to to live righteously and to shine the truth. Lord, will you help us do that? Will you help us be the salt of the earth and the light of the world? Not because we deserve it, not because we're so great. It's all because of you. Shine your love and truth and righteousness through us. Lord, please bring an end. Please bring an end to the injustice that's happening in our world. And help us be a part of that. Thank you for Jesus in his name. Amen.